0: To faith of our fathers, today we feature a favorite southern preacher, Vance Habner. After writing his first book, By the Still Waters, Vance Habner took to the road in 1940. He says, I was in a low state physically, for I had been suffering from nervous exhaustion for two years, and a traveling ministry seemed the last thing a preacher in my condition should undertake. I got as far as Chicago, came down with the flu and wound up in a hospital. The devil sat on the foot of the bed and laughed at my discomfort. The doctor told me to go south. I wired the Florida Bible Institute and accepted an invitation I had declined earlier. I recuperated, met a gracious little lady who became my wife and has meant more to me than anyone else on earth. The Lord knew I needed to go south instead of north. Also in that school, I met a lean, lanky student by the name of Billy Graham. We had our picture taken on the campus. 20 years later, we posed for another snapshot. What God wrought in 20 years. Today's message is, A Desperate Need for the Lord.
1: I stood on a mountaintop in Israel and looked across to Bethlehem and through my mind there ran those immortal lines of Philip's brooks. O oh, little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep the silent stars go by. Yet in the dark streets shineth the everlasting light the hopes and fears of all the years, are met in thee tonight. Those last two lines, the hopes and fears of all the years, are met in that little town tonight. Has it ever occurred to you that when Jesus came the first time, This old world was in a wretched condition that reminds us very much of the headlines today. Famines, pestilence, earthquake, wars, rumors of wars, men's hearts failing them for fear, excessive taxation. (laughs) Sounds natural. We've always had that. Somebody said the Revolutionary War was fought over taxation without representation. You you ought to see it now with representation. A form of godliness without the power. Demonism. They had hippies. Religion was cold and meaningless. God's people were under bondage. A faithful few were looking for the Messiah. They wore flowing robes and we wear dress suits but we worship the same gods by different names. But then Jesus came, and everything's been different since. He made such a difference that all history and all humanity and all the past and the present and the future are judged by its relation to Jesus Christ. Celebrities have marched across the stage of history, and they haven't made much difference. But Jesus Christ is the test by which men are judged because when he came, he precipitated a crisis, and every man's destiny is determined by what he does about Jesus Christ. I wish everybody knew John 3.19 like they know John 3.16. This is the judgment. This is the crisis in the original, really, just spelled with a K. This is the crisis. It hasn't been Watergate. It wasn't Vietnam. This is the crisis, that light has come into the world. And men love the darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. A man may make other decisions and be just temporarily the worse for it, but if he makes the wrong decision about Jesus Christ, he is eternally the worse for it. When Jesus came, he made a difference in every life he touched. One day a wicked woman started to a well to draw water. Living in sin and shame, little did she dream that before sunset she'd be a new woman and start a revival and convert all the neighbors. And all of that began because Jesus came and sat on the well. And through the centuries since, poor wretches from the outermost and the uttermost and the guttermost have found in him the answer to depravity. From the sordid to the sacred and from bums to believers, he breaks the power of canceled sin and sets the prisoner free. Turns our misery into melody and our heartaches into hallelujahs and makes heavenly harmony out of demonic discord. He lifts men out of a horrible pit, sets their feet on a rock, and puts a new song in their mouths, he even prays unto our God. So, first of all, Jesus is the answer to depravity. You don't hear much about depravity anymore, sinfulness of the human heart. That's not because we have any less of it. I heard of an old preacher who had preached a sermon on that subject, and somebody came up after the meeting said, I just can't swallow this depravity you've been preaching about. The old preacher said, you don't have to swallow it, it's already in you. And whether we like it or not, we've got it. And Jesus is the answer to it. It's a wonderful thing to see what Jesus can do with depravity at both ends of the social spectrum. When I was pastor in the First Baptist Church in Charleston, South Carolina, for five years, 34 to 39, we had a barber there who was a drunkard. His family was about to break up. They brought him down to the meeting a couple of Sundays, and he got under conviction. And he started out one night, and I took out after him. And I said, don't you think you'd better settle this thing? And he said, yes, he thought so. And he came back, and we had prayer, put his arm around my neck and said, pray for me. And I said, I will. You pray for yourself. God saved him. My, what a change, immediately. Stayed on the same spot, the barber shop, but uh, that old crowd around there didn't know what to think. A new man was working in there. One week I had Merv Roselle with me in a meeting. Merv was blowing his saxophone and leading the singing, and I was preaching. And the Phone rang about 1 o'clock at night. and It was this fellow Ligger at the other end of the line. Calling from his home, said, I've got a sailor over here that needs to get saved. I want you fellas to come over and tell him how. I'm afraid I won't get him told straight. Well, we staggered down the steps, one eye shut and the other going out of business. Our evangelistic zeal was at a record low at one in the morning. We got over there and Ligger had his sailor on his knees and some other folks were there trying to tell him how to get saved. Of course, he couldn't because too many folks telling him how. I had a few words with him, and uh, I thought he was drunk or doped or both. As I started out, he raised up on one knee and said, Lord, help this preacher to believe I mean business. I'd gone over there to pray for him, and he had to pray for me. Well, he got saved. Ligger knew the pit he'd been digged from, and he wanted other folks to have the same experience. He'd bring a crowd down to church, fill up a whole bench with an assortment, rather miscellaneous sometimes, but from all about. Smoke for a few weeks after he was saved, and he said, every time I saw you coming down the street, that old cigarette got big as a baseball bat. <laughs> said, I didn't know whether to stick it in my pocket or swallow it or what to do with it. But the Lord got him out of that too. and. The church, some time ago, gave him a plaque for being one of the most faithful members through all these many years since the 30s. And the only explanation of it is, then Jesus came. And just about a year ago, my pastor in Greensboro said, I want you to meet a remarkable new Christian. He's in his 70s, the head of the drama department of the University of North Carolina, just across the street from where I live. One of the buildings is named for him, a world traveler, brilliant man. His wife prayed for 45 years that he'd be saved. And he was a a total unbeliever and an infidel. But I had dinner over at his house not long ago. And he said, as we sat at the table, I fancy this man who's traveled everywhere, speaks several different languages versed in drama he said I said were you in a revival no I didn't hear a sermon he said God woke me up in the middle of the night to tell me just what a wicked old sinner I was and I got saved just like that now he's going everywhere bragging on Jesus Christ I never saw anything like it he's as happy as a kid with a new toy and he's 76 years of age he doesn't know one church from another he goes to all of them that's a pretty good way to be I think after all you know, the happiest fellow in the world is a young Christian before he's met too many Bible scholars. And he's like that, just full of the joy of the Lord. Now, that's the other end of the social spectrum. And the only answer is, then Jesus came. He's my buddy. We're in our 70s. i like to get with him. He wants to see me as soon as I get back up to Greensboro. He's going to do a book about some of his experience. And it was always that way. You remember, there was another poor woman dying with an incurable disease. Her health was gone, her money was gone. And there came a day when it looked like it was going to be just another one of those days. But she heard a commotion outside, and she looked, and people were going all directions. And she said, What's going on? They said, Jesus of Nazareth is going through town. She said, This is my chance. She wrapped some old rag of a dress around her. Remember, her money was all gone as well as her health. And took off down through that crowd. I don't know how she got through that crowd. But she said, if I can only touch the hem of his garment. I don't know how she did it. Remember, she was nearly dead. Remember, she was penniless. I don't know how she got through that mob. It's not nice for a woman to elbow her way through a crowd and ladies don't do it unless there's a sale on at the department store and here she went i've got to get to jesus let me say tonight that when you're desperate you will get there that's why a lot of people never get there and while the others thronged him mark five just keeps using those two words throng and touch throng and touch the crowd thronged him but she touched him and jesus turned and said who touched me And then poor old Peter, one of the Gospels says, you know, Peter, somebody has said, is the most American of all the disciples. And I think so. The Bible says he said not knowing what he said. Well, that was usually the way and he told. Most of the things in the Gospels that Peter said were a mistake. You check on them, nearly everything he said. And on this occasion, Thou seest the multitude thronging thee, and sayest thou who touched me. Both words in that verse. Ah, but Jesus knew that was another kind of touch. He said, I felt power go out from it. And then he made her come out publicly and testify, because Jesus doesn't know anything about these secret believers and disciples. He always demanded public confession. What a day for that poor woman that started like any other day, then Jesus came. And I think of that Gadarene demoniac, that maniac, that wild man, that man that, uh, men couldn't chain and chains couldn't bind and living in a graveyard screaming and cutting himself with stones then jesus came and the demons departed into the hogs and the man departed for home and if you think there aren't any demoniacs today think again they're not all in insane asylums they leer at you from newspapers and tv and you pass by them on the streets we're having an epidemic of it you see it in alcoholism drug addiction rock and roll you read it in the hideous crimes for these terrible things you're reading about today are not ordinary meanness we've always had meanness this is double distilled concentrated demonism in these last days it's devil possession the psychiatrist has his name for it and the sociologists try to account for it and the liberal preachers say that jesus was just accommodating himself to the ideas of his time but he had the right word for it and he had the right cure for it himself. Then Jesus came. And it was a sad day in Bethany. John 11, Lazarus was ill and his troubled sister sent an SOS call to Jesus, He whom thou lovest is sick. Wouldn't you have thought that Jesus would take off for Bethany post-haste but the Bible says that he loved them so he waited two days. How strange. There is a love that takes its time. And grief was added to grief and sorrow to sorrow. And Lazarus died and Jesus finally got there and Martha said, If you'd been here, this wouldn't have happened. But he was there. And because he came, he was the answer to distress and to death and to delay and to disappointment. And before the day was over, Lazarus was out of his grave and out of his grave clothes, and the word was all over town, and the devil was mad, and the enemies of my Lord were alarmed. It makes a big difference in Bethany when Jesus comes. It made a big difference in a little town called Nain. He ran into a funeral procession. The only son of a widow was on the way to the burial. Jesus never conducted any funerals. He always broke them up. You never learn how to conduct a funeral. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they didn't have any. They had a lot of resurrections. When Jesus came, death couldn't hold its victims. When he died, dead men got up and walked around on the streets. When he comes again, all dead men arise. Jesus Christ answered not only depravity and despair and demonism, but he was the answer to death because he conquered death and through death destroyed him that had the power of death, the devil. And after he rose from the dead, I like the way the King James Version puts it in John 20, 19. Then the same day at evening being the first day of the week when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled, for fear of the Jews came Jesus. It doesn't say Jesus came. Came Jesus and stood in the midst, and said unto them, Peace be unto you. He's the answer to discouragement. And if you're living in a closed-door session with your fears, the answer to it's found here, came Jesus. But old Thomas wasn't there that time. He missed one prayer meeting and was an infidel for a whole week. You better go to the prayer meeting. And he said, I won't believe till I can see. I'm from Missouri. I got to see. And then Jesus came. Again, that time Thomas saw and believed. And he dissolves our doubts because they just can't exist in the same room with the risen Christ. Well, it was always like that when Jesus came. Four salty fishermen about their business. Then Jesus came and promoted them to the biggest fishing business in the world. And a customs collector, and nobody's ever been fond of them, tax collector sat at his desk, and Jesus came and said, follow me, and he folded up his papers and started out to become one of the writers of the Bible. And a little Jewish tax collector for the Roman government, and that was worst of all, despised by his own people, got caught in the crowd, climbed the sycamore tree to see Jesus go by. Jesus knows when you're up a tree, came along and said, Come down, Zacchaeus. I've got a dinner engagement at your house. That was the guest inviting himself to dinner. Zacchaeus didn't even know about that. And he came down. I don't know where he got saved, somewhere between the top of that tree and the ground. Because when he hit the ground, he said, I'm ready to straighten out all my crooked business deals. Brother, he had it. You know, if some church members today would get converted, they'd wear out sole leather carrying back things that don't belong to them. And so he straightened up and became a respectable citizen because Jesus came. And a little later, old Simon Peter led these lonely disciples on a fishing trip that was a complete failure. Next morning, Jesus came, stood on the shore, had breakfast ready with the fish cookout. And on that shore, he reinstated Simon Peter, the old backslider, who denied his Lord at one fire and was restored at another fire. You know that. That fire in the courtyard, he denied him. And at this fire on the shore, He was reinstated. The most miserable man in this world is a man between those two fires. Now, if you're living tonight between the fire of denial of your Lord, and you haven't been reinstated yet, you're in a miserable state. But, oh, what a difference it makes when Jesus shows up and builds that fire on the shore. Then there was a paralytic that lay helpless day by day until... Jesus came, and then four friends took him up and let him down through the roof. They tore up the roof to get him through to Jesus. I think maybe more folks would have a miracle today if we tore up more roofs, as it were. Did the unusual thing. This fellow who came with his back on the bed went out with the bed on his back. All because four people thought enough of him to get him to Jesus. Something always happens when Jesus comes. And something happens today when you recognize him. I'm tired of these dry, dull, dead, dismal, desolate meetings we have in so many churches. You'd never know Jesus had ever come the first time. oughtn't to be dry. I heard of a preacher who met one of his delinquent members and said, you haven't been to church lately. No, he said, you know how it's been. Children have been sick and then it's rained and rained and rained. And the preacher said, well, it's always dry church. Yes, he said, that's another reason I haven't been coming. I don't blame her. I don't know whether I'd go to some churches or not myself. I think I probably told it five years ago here, but you know, you're a different crowd anyhow. And, uh, and the rest of you have forgotten it. So. Uh, my friend Dan McBride likes to tell about a little boy at church on Sunday. Preaching went on and on and on and on. The preacher was through, but he wouldn't quit. You know, they're like that a lot of times. And he sat there, and he had drawn all the pictures he knew how to draw. And uh, he was at the end of his resources down there. And he said, Mama, what's that that flag up there? Why, son? She said, that's the American flag. What's that one? Well, that's the Christian flag. And what's the little one with the stars in it? Well, that's the service flag for those who have died in the service. He said, the morning service or the evening service. (laughs) I don't blame him. It oughtn't to be like that, and whenever the Lord is there and you are conscious of his presence and something happens, you don't have to put on a circus, you don't have to put on a show. Jesus will take care of all that. There came a day when only one disciple remained, and a lonely man sat on a desolate island out in a lonely sea. And Jesus came and said, John, I'm going to give you a preview of what is to come, the meaning of history and the secret of destiny. They had a Futurama at the World's Fair years ago, but talk about a Futurama. This was it, the one that John saw. That's the one I like to study. I wouldn't cross the street to see what the experts think the world's going to look like in 1990. They're telling us what a wonderful place it's going to be. It'll have to pick up considerably between now and then. But it'd be worth a trip to Patmos to be there when Jesus comes. I'd like to see that. I remember spending five days in Jerusalem in the Intercontinental Hotel on the top of the Mount of Olives and got up every morning before sunup to see the sun rise over the old city. And I thought of what Jesus said, O Jerusalem that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, How often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under wings, and you would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. And that's the word you still think of when you look at old Jerusalem. I'm not talking about the new with its apartments and all that sort of thing. I'm talking about the old one that's been ground in the dust and rebuilt and uh, destroyed and rebuilt all through these years. Three temples, temples—Shishak and Sennacherib and Nebuchadnezzar and Antiochus Epiphanes and Pompey and Titus and the Persians and the Saracens and the Turks and the Crusaders and Saladin and uh, Allenby. All have left their footprints there and that old town is still there because God means to keep it there till he's through with it. Gory in its past and glorious in its future. And Jesus is the answer to Jerusalem's desolation. I told the rest of the crowd that day to go on. I went to stay by myself on the top of the Mount of Olives all afternoon, and I did. And I said, Lord, I don't know when you're coming back, but I know where you're coming. Zechariah says you're going to come to this mountaintop and split it in two. That's what it says. I said, Lord, I'm here now. I'm part of the reception committee if you want to come today. <laughs> Suit me, mighty well. Well, he didn't show up, but one of these days he's coming. You listen to all the experts on the TV panels. Don't you get tired of hearing all these PhDs tell what everything's going to be like, holding symposiums, you know, where they pool their ignorance. That's what a symposium is. They've got all the answers and don't know what the question is. And when you hear all that, you're glad to turn back to an old book that tells us the why and the what. You don't have to be a Ph.D. One of the great black preachers said the other day, you don't have to be in who's who to know what's what. And that's so true. Oh, beloved, it made a lot of difference when Jesus came. But I want to say tonight that what he's done for others, he'll do for you. He has the answer to your depravity and your despair and your discouragement and your doubt and your defeat and your dilemma. And when Oswald Smith and Homer wrote, he put this together. When Jesus comes, the tempter's power is broken. When Jesus comes, the tears are wiped away, takes the gloom and fills the life with glory for all is changed when Jesus comes to stay. Now I know what you're saying out there. Somebody wrote a poem about it. You're saying, some of you, I wish I could have been in the meeting where Jesus came. I hear people say that. Wouldn't it have been grand to have been in a meeting where Jesus came? Is it ever going to get into our poor minds that you're in one now? You see, you've been going so long and got so used to it that you can't, you want to maybe, but bless your heart, you just can't take that in. Now, if he's not here, what in the world are we doing here? It's an exercise in futility. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I, in the midst of them. I wonder how many folks really believe he's here. Oh, you sort of do up here. Yes, the Bible says so. Now, some people try to make up for the absence of the Lord in some places by a lot of pomp and ritual, and others whip up wild excitements, and some freeze in formalism, and some fry in fanaticism. Some go all the way from rigor mortis to St. Vitus dance, and that's where the church is going today. And uh, somehow we can't get it into our system. According to the Bible, Jesus is here. You can't see him. He's he's a spiritual person now. If you had your resurrection eyes, or your the eyes of those between death and the resurrection, you could take it in. You can't you can't see him, but he's here, and he will meet the need of anybody in this place, just like he did back then. Somehow, if we ever got that in our minds and our hearts. Something would really happen. But I'll tell you why it isn't happening. Most people are not desperate. Almost everybody in the Bible who had a great blessing from God was desperate. Moses at the Red Sea, David and Goliath, Gideon in the 300, the lepers in the Gate of Samaria, the New Testament, Bartimaeus, Zacchaeus, Sarah Phoenician woman, this poor woman that touched him in the crowd. Every one of them desperate. They got theirs. And the only one who didn't of significance is the rich young ruler and that boy had everything and went away with nothing because he wasn't desperate. He could take it or leave it and as long as you can take it or leave it, you'll leave it. And away he went with nothing but money. I don't know whether we have any desperate people here tonight or not. And You look comfortable and pretty satisfied. But I haven't faced congregations for 60 years for nothing. And I don't take you for granted. I wonder if we have any desperate people here tonight with a desperate need for the Lord, for yourself or for somebody else. Now, if you've got it, you know it. If you have to think it up, forget it. You haven't got it. If you've got it, you know it. So I'm not interested in trying to whip up some superficial sense of need. The trouble with Laodicea was they didn't need anything. We're rich and increased with goods and have needed nothing. And I wear myself out preaching to people today who don't need anything. And I wonder if we've got any desperate people here tonight. And if you can forget that it's raining, it has done that before. The devil would use anything to try to get our minds off of the main business here tonight. But if you're desperate, you won't even let that bother you. I'm kind of glad for the disturbance. I think it might sift out the superficial from those who mean business. If there's anybody in here tonight with a desperate need of Jesus for yourself or for somebody else, you won't let anything stand in the way any more than these people did in the book. Let's bow our heads for a moment. I'd like to know if there are any folks here tonight who can, by an uplifted hand, say, Brother Havner, I do have a desperate need of the Lord for myself or for someone else. It's desperate. It brings tears to my eyes. It takes sleep from my eyes sometimes. It's really serious and desperate. I have a deep need of the Lord. Would you lift a hand if you have such a need all over the place tonight? If you have such a need, yes, the Lord bless you. I have a desperate need of the Lord tonight. God bless you. I'm going to ask just one thing more, no singing. This is just for desperate people. I'm not interested in anybody else tonight. If you've got a desperate need of the Lord Jesus and you need to touch him tonight for that need, would you get up and come down here and stand in front of the pulpit and let me have a closing word of prayer and then we're going. But if you're desperate, you'll come and I'm not going to beg you at all. But if you're desperate, would you get up and slip down here right now and stand and say, Preacher, it's worth a walk down the aisle. I'm desperate. I have a deep need of the Lord for myself or somebody else. Yes, thank you. I don't have to beg you because if you're desperate, you'll come. I'm just giving you the opportunity, that's all. You have a deep, desperate, special need of the Lord. You have, everybody needs Jesus, but I'm talking about a special, deep, desperate need of the Lord. For yourself or for somebody else. And don't try to think it up. You know what it is if you've got it. I have a deep, desperate, special need of the Lord. Let's believe he's here and that we touch him. As many as touched him, it says, were made perfectly whole. Just those that touched him. Not those that thronged him. Not those that came out to the meeting at Sandy Cove. Just those that touched him. Not the crowd on Sunday morning at church. Most of them just throng him. They never touch him. But every once in a while, some poor soul in that crowd does get through. Touch him. This is just for desperate folks. Now I want you to claim the promise of Mark 11, 24, whatsoever things ye desire when ye pray, believe that ye receive them and ye shall have them. That's a strange grammar. It doesn't say believe that you will get it and you'll have it. It says believe you have it and you'll get it. Well, you go home and make a big red ring around that verse. Dr. Torrey said it bothered him, the grammar of it. Believe that I have it and I'll get it. Well, that doesn't make sense. He said, I quit worrying about the grammar and believe God. Our Father, we present to thee these dear friends of ours who stand here. Thou knowest the burdens on their hearts. It may be a personal need. It may be body, mind, or spirit. It may be a loved one. It may be some situation that they can only tell thee about. But right now, help each one of them to just settle this thing right now, and by simple faith, touch Jesus, and consider it settled, whether they feel like it or not. When anything said about feeling like it in these accounts, they got through to Jesus anyhow, and help them to consider this the moment right now when they definitely the best way they knew how to touch Jesus. And of course they won't any more than get back to their seat till the devil starts saying I have nothing to it and make fun of them, but he's a liar and has been from the beginning. Help them to believe the book, believe Jesus, and believe the verse that says, My God shall supply all your need. This could be the night. May seem quiet, not a lot of racket going on. Lord don't have to have a lot of noise. It doesn't say that either. Quiet, simple faith that believe Jesus is really here and settles with him. And Lord, you honor that. It's not how much faith we have, it's faith in the faithful one. We don't have much, but you said, as much as a grain of mustard seed move a mountain. That's mighty little faith and a mighty big thing to move. Help us to believe it. And consider this tonight when they slipped down the aisle and stood at the front and said, Lord, like the poor sick woman in the crowd, I touch thee. I trust thee. I thank thee. I believe that thou dost meet my need. And now shall we all stand, please. We pray that thou wilt bring other people over this congregation to their knees tonight in the colleges, wherever they are, when they go home or whatever to say, Lord, I have just believed in my head that you are there, and I never have really believed it enough to take you up on it, him that cometh to me. I'll in no wise cast out for salvation or anything else. For once, Lord, help us to take thee up on it and to believe thee for what we need. And now may a deep sense of thy presence attend us as we go out, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: You've been listening to Vance Havner. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.